This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 55, Banks versus Mutual Insurance Companies. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Um, I'm your host here, Holly Bach, here today, and with me is co-host Mark Willis. Hi. All righty. And so we just came off an episode where we were talking about policy loans and using bank loans versus policy loans, paying cash, and just kind of the whole dynamic there. And so what we want to talk about today is, is kind of tangentially related to that. And we want to talk about the difference between banks and you know, mutual insurance companies. And so we'll actually get, it's it's kind of interesting because you, you know, we're, if you just ask someone, you know, is a bank different from an insurance company? Of course, everyone would say, absolutely. They're, you know, not even close to being the same thing. But sometimes when we're working with people, we'll get questions like people are expecting an insurance company or at least their policies and what we're working with them to be like a bank. Mm-hmm. Um and so I guess we were just kind of trying to think of a way that we could kind of shed some light on that dynamic. You know, how close can an insurance company get to being a bank or at least providing you the ease and convenience of a bank while still maintaining the integrity of being an insurance company? And so in order to do that, we just kind of wanted to run through a little bit of history, a little bit of background on what a bank is, what it in, you know, what insurance companies are. And then kind of at the end of this episode, we'll kind of bring it back as to how that then affects how each one has to operate in a different way. And we can't necessarily expect them to ever be exactly the same um, because then as soon as they're the same, there's no difference, right? Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, Yeah. Exactly. And so with that, just kind of wanted to start off talking about banks, how they work, what they're about. And um, (laughs) we were just thinking about, you know, what happens when you put your money into a bank? So, you know, when you put your money into a bank, it's sitting with this bank institution and they really have access to your money. I mean, it's funny because people think about checking accounts and savings account as this like fantastic safe place to put their money. Like my like money is, you know, sitting right there. Rock solid. Ready for me to take it. Like I couldn't put it anywhere safer than that checking account. And what's so funny about it though is (laughs) your money's not sitting there. It's not. (laughs) No. I mean, no sooner have you deposited it than it's actually probably right back out the back door. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we, we were just kind of thinking about that a little bit. And so, I mean, if you're, if you do make that deposit though, you put your money into a bank, um, let's just say it's a savings account, interest bearing savings account. And I mean, really, what if, you know, what are you really earning on that money? I mean, at this point today, you're probably lucky if you can get, you know, 0.5% on Mm -hmm. that deposit. Um, You're probably one of the lucky ones as far as the interest that's getting paid out to you. And so if you're getting, you know, $10,000, or if you put $10,000 into the bank, you're only getting $50 that entire year 
for the bank to have access to your whole $10,000 for the entirety of that year. And so we just kind of wanted to talk about to, again, explain the dynamic of what a bank is doing, what banks are about. Um, I mean, Mark, what are they doing with that money then? I mean, you'd make that $10,000 deposit and then what are they doing with it? Well, you said that we get $50 for them to rent our money and then they have access to it. So what does access mean? Well, what's the bank's number one business? It's not checking accounts, okay? They're not making money off my free checking or (laughs) quote-unquote free checking. Um, Most people don't realize that it's not checking and savings that's really the bank's business. The business of banking is lending. What do they lend? They lend our money. It's (laughs) our money, right? Currently, there are $9.3 trillion in bank loans in this country alone. That's $9,300 $9,300 billion, billion dollars, according to the um, Federal Reserve uh, St. Louis Fed. Uh, so that's been on a steep rise since 2008, the Great Recession. Banks have been making a heyday off of us here. So, you know, it's, it's not common knowledge that modern banking in this country goes back a couple hundred years. But a crucial moment was in 1910 uh, when some of the wealthiest families traveled to this little known island off of Georgia uh, called uh, Jekyll Island. J.P. Morgan was there. Rockefeller was there. Rothschild. What was the goal of that meeting? Well, it was to control the money supply and profit from it. So, you know, it's all, it's all about own nothing, control everything. Own nothing, control everything. That's kind of the bank's mantra, you can imagine. So they, they got on to uh, uh, this project of building something that was not quite uh, a uh, private institution, not quite a federal bank, because that had been tried twice before in this country. So they created this thing called the Federal Reserve, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll talk more in detail in an upcoming episode. But we discussed uh, in our banks, How Banks Win episode, episode 59, that banks are le- allowed to keep only a very small fraction of our actual deposits on reserve. And then they're cashing out the rest and giving it to the guy behind us in line for uh, big fat profits. Yep. So, for example, just in January of 2018, so January of this year, um, the Fed actually updated those reserve requirements. So they're they're keeping an eye on things, oh, right? right? Yeah. No, they're they're making for sure. Our good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they updated those requirements for um, you know the depository institutions of all sorts of different sizes. So um, just to kind of break it down a little bit, banks with more than 122.3 million in net transaction accounts. They have to maintain a uh, reserve of 10% of those net transaction accounts. Okay, so if you have um, 122.3 million or more, then 10% is how much you have to keep on reserve. Uh, banks with 16 million to 122 million, so you know less than 122 but more than 16 million, have to keep a reserve of 3% of their net transaction accounts. And then banks with accounts of $16 million or less don't have to keep a reserve requirement. Wow. So that reserve requirement's eliminated Zero. if your, you know, a bank, your bank only has $16 million or less of net transaction accounts. Wow. I guess, I guess that's surprising to a lot of people I talk to. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like, well, is that really safe then? Um, okay, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the majority of banks, though, in the United States do fall into the first 
category. Um, so they're having to keep at least that, you know, 10%. A whopping on, 10%. Okay. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and then the Fed set a 0% requirement for non-personal time deposits in Euro, Euro currency liabilities. So that stuff's all not even a part of it. So at best, you've actually got, you know, 10% of your money at the bank. So when you think of your checking account and you're like, I have, you know, let's just say $5,000 in my checking account, you're, and you're, you're picturing your checking account as a physical place with all $10,000 or $5,000 there, no, that's not the case at all. It's not all sitting there. They have lent it back out. So where is all your money then? It, well, it's back in everyone else's pockets in the form of debt. So it's in our car loans, it's in our mortgages, our student loans, our credit cards. And so, you know, if you imagine your $5,000 sitting in your checking account, really then turn around in line at the bank and then imagine your $5,000 equally distributed into the pockets of all the people around you. Because that's pretty much what's happened. Well, and, and as we've said, you know, what do they do when they get some money? They put it in a bank, right? Yeah. And then um, what does that do? Well, that just creates even more money in the supply chain. So, you know, if we were to all pay it, some people believe, I'm not sure if I understand or agree with this, but I have heard this theory that if all of us somehow tried to pay off all our debts immediately, the entire world's money would just disappear. Think about that for a minute. If all the money was, all the debt was paid off in the whole world, the entire world's money would just disappear because there's not enough money on reserve to pay back all the money that we all owe each other. Uh, yet banks are pulling massive profits off this giant pyramid scheme that they built. And this is supposedly the safe place to put our money, <laughs> right? So why do we do this? Well, I think it's because it's all we know. It's all we've ever been taught, of course. You know, but uh, we've been teaching and hopefully sharing with you on this podcast You don't have to participate in that system. You don't have to be part of the banker's problem. Uh, And we don't, thank goodness, we don't have to wait for Congress to pass some sort of law or end the Fed, as some people say, right? Uh, One by one, we can extricate ourselves from the strategy of banks winning on, on our backs and instead become our own source of financing. It can happen for you right now, today. It doesn't mean we have to get out of our checking account and savings accounts. Again, the the business of banking is not checking and savings. Uh, It's lending. It means that we use the bank for our convenience rather than them using us for their convenience. So there is another way, right? There's a whole other category of financial institutions out there, and they're called mutual life insurance companies. Now, these are in in, uh, juxtaposition to publicly traded life insurance companies. So mutually owned life insurance companies are owned by the policyholders, And they've been around for several hundred years in this country alone. Uh, As long as banks have been here, there have been mutually owned life insurance companies. And in fact, I was doing some research on this. The earliest possibly was started by Mr. Benjamin Franklin in 1752. So mutual life insurance actually predates the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. That was a a real surprise to me. How about that? Yeah. And so when it comes to mutually owned life insurance, I mean, it is what it sounds like. So when a mutually owned, the policyholders are the ones that actually own the insurance company they have a policy with. So that means there aren't any outside influences to try and push or bargain for short-term profits or you know bumping up ratios and margins. And there's no outside shareholders that are wheezing you know the board to risk it all, um, trying to get them to again increase those profits, get more money in their pocket. 
And uh, so by nature of the insurance contracts um, or companies promise to pay, life insurance companies are not allowed to inflate the money supply or participate in fractional reserve banking. That's interesting. So say that again. So what do you mean by that? So because the insurance company has to be able to make good on their promises to, I mean, you have guarantees in a life insurance policy, right? So it's guaranteed that your um your death benefit will get paid out when you pass away, they have to keep such a large portion of that on reserve. So they can't really participate in this fractional reserve banking because they, you know, their, their, um, I guess, percentage would have to be like, you know, 70, 80, you know, percent that they'd have to be keeping still on the books because they have to be able to pay out so many of those on, you know, at, at yeah. any given moment. I've really. even heard that, uh, you know, I need to get some source material for this, uh, but on uh, there's a uh, several websites that keep track of the reserve requirements and, and what the state insurance commissioner asks, and it's over 100% has to be kept uh, to pay out all of the death claims mm-hmm. and the guaranteed annual cash value increases, uh, mm-hmm. which is so different than a 10% reserve requirement at a local bank. So yeah. literally, life insurance cash values are 10 times as safe as a bank deposit account. Mm -hmm. It's it's wild to me. Yeah. So which do you think is safer? The institution that only actually has 10% of your money sitting there or the institution that has maybe 110% sitting there or even just 101% of your money sitting there? Um, I think I know who's going to pay out Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, although there are fewer than 100 mutual life insurance companies in the U.S., which there's about you know 1,400 stock companies. So there's many, there's much fewer um, mutual life insurance companies than stock companies. But mutual accounts um, still account for over one quarter of the industry's assets. So that's you know insurance hmm. enforced premiums and benefits paid. Wow. So you know they they also are not allowed again according to the their charter and according to the state insurance commissioner who audits these insurance companies regularly, they cannot invest in the same kind of risky investments that banks do mm-hmm. or the same kind of you know risky derivatives that brought down the economy in 2008. Okay, so pop quiz. Holly, you ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, we all think that banks are a safe place to put our money. How many banks went bankrupt in 2008? A lot. A lot, yes, <laughs> yeah. There were 465 banks, not, not branches of banks, entire banks went bankrupt in 2008. Wow. And uh, that's according to Wikipedia. So, you know, you, you can trust that, of course, right? Um, <laughs> and then uh, how many life insurance companies went bankrupt in 2008? Um, I didn't hear about too many. Not like I heard about banks closing their doors every other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was only one. And that's according to the National Organization of Life and Health Insurance Guarantee Associations. Mm. So, you know, that was Lincoln Memorial Life Insurance, which I had never heard of them. Uh, for one. But that's just, to me, that's staggering that one versus 465. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if a, if a life insurance company gets into financial difficulty, the state insurance commissioner takes over, runs the company in the interest of policyholders. So with this Lincoln Memorial Group, I've never heard of them, uh, the state insurance commissioner of Texas jumped in, took over, and I read on uh, NOLHGA's website, the Guarantee Association website, that as of 2017, the another insurance company um, had bought out, basically assumed the majority of the remaining insurance covered by that defunct uh, Lincoln Memorial, and they are protecting and guaranteeing those payouts that you know they were promised when they set up those contracts. 
So if, if banks are so safe, why did so many fail? If life insurance companies uh, have all this backstop and, and protection mechanisms set up in place, why are we putting all of our trust and all of our faith in a banking system that's just there to profit from us? And if there's not gonna be a bailout next time there's a major market meltdown or bank crisis, what's gonna happen to all of our deposits? Mm-hmm. How many more banks are we going to see go down? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and a lot of people ask me, well, you know, if this is so good, why doesn't everybody do it? And I, I usually stop and ask, well, have you ever, and <laughs> this is a nerd's way of answering the question, but have you ever looked into who owns these things? Um, one of the things I'd recommend all of our listeners check out is bank-owned life insurance. Just Google that phrase, bank-owned life insurance, and just see what comes up. According to FDIC's own report, so these are kind of, uh, you know, real reports based on uh, actual reporting that uh, banks have to give to the FDIC to keep that little, you know, standard of quality at FDIC. 83% of banks in this country uh, have over $100 billion in bank-owned life insurance. In fact, I think last time I saw it, it was about $160 billion wrapped up in life insurance contracts. So that's crazy. Uh, So these bank-owned policies can be an effective way. This is straight out of the report from the FDIC. They say the purchase of bank-owned life insurance, or BOLI, can have an effective way for institutions, banks, to manage uh, manage exposures arising from commitments, to provide employee compensation and pre- and post-retirement benefits, and to protect against the loss of key persons. So that's coming straight off the FDIC report. That's huge. That's huge. If banks think this is a great place to stash cash, it's okay for me too. In 2016, the Equity Alliance, Michael White, Bully Holdings Report indicated that the FDIC asset concentration guidelines are 25% of a bank's safest money, their tier one capital, is in cash surrender values of life insurance. In other words, uh, banks can have 25% of their top shelf money wrapped up in life insurance contracts. And actually, that's a good thing uh, mm-hmm. to, to make sure that at least the little bit of the pennies that the bank keeps on the, on their, in their vault is wrapped up in something as safe and predictable as life insurance contracts. Mm-hmm. So they say the cash value of bank-owned life insurance policies was at, yeah, $161.8 billion as of the end of 2016, December. And that represents a 3.6% increase from the year before. And that's according to that same report. So bank-owned life insurance currently offers a really interesting yield for folks, for banks specifically. So anywhere from 2.5% to 3.75%, which uh, for the average Joe doesn't sound like a lot of return until you remember that banks are taxed at 38% of their earnings. So that translates into a tax equivalent yield of 4% and up to 6% with no market risk. So bank on yourself, according to these reports, uh, bank on yourself is one way we call it, but it's bank-owned life insurance to the banks, remains an attractive investment alternative that a lot of banks put their money to work in. Mm-hmm. So again, it's this idea of look to see, you know, for, for kind of looking at the banks and we're, we're looking at how successful they are, yeah. how they're making money off everyone. It's like, okay, well, what are they doing with their money? Yeah. So they're telling us that we should trust them 
but who are they trusting their money with? Ooh, that's tweetable. That's so. tweetable. So yeah, um, don't listen to what banks tell you to do with your money, guys. Just do what they do. Do what they do. Yeah. yeah look and at what they're doing and go do that. Yep. And you could make the same argument of you know, these big corporations and these big companies. And so just like banks have bank-owned life insurance, which is commonly known as bully, while companies and corporations have corporate owned life insurance. And that's commonly known as Coley. So Bully and Coley. Um, it it goes well together. <laughs> and so a lot of companies have this corporate owned life insurance as well. So um, actually Hartford Life Insurance estimated that one quarter of all Fortune 500 companies have Coley policies, which cover the lives of about 5 million of their employees. So, I mean, if they're, you know, we're talking a quarter of all the Fortune 500 companies, so the big companies, the successful companies that have made it, you know, on this list are putting enough into these things that they're covering 5 million individuals. So, I mean, there's a decent chunk of cash that's going into uh, life, insurance, life insurance, even on the corporate level. Um, also, according to the Office of the Comptroller of the Current, uh, Currency, banks may purchase BOLI policies to be used in connection with the funding of employee compensation and benefits plans, as well as for a few other, you know, very specific uses. Wow. Okay. So, so we're wrapping a few ideas around this, but let's get right to the matter. Is a mutual life insurance company cash value policy, like we talk about with bank on yourself, is it safer than a bank? Well, so life insurance companies are strictly regulated. We've talked about that. They're audited by state insurance commissioners uh, to main maintain sufficient cash on holding for paying out death benefits and making sure they're on solid ground. Second, that's the first there. The second thing is if the company does get into difficulty, the state insurance commissioner takes over, runs the company in the interest of policyholders, and usually it's passed on to another company so all you have in your experience as a policyholder of a defunct life insurance company is, you know, a new logo at the top of your annual dividend statements. Mm -hmm. All right. So the most insurance companies that we work with anyway are audited regularly by outside independent rating agencies on top of the state insurance commissioner. They want to show their books, make it clear that they're around to stay for the next hundred years. And there might even be additional guarantees and other uh, protections on a state-by-state state-by-state state basis as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, most of what these insurance companies are invested in are in like held to maturity, investment grade, fixed income assets, bonds mostly. Uh, usually one or two percent or less is in any kind of government debt. And so their bond portfolio that most of these insurance companies are, are putting their money into is held to maturity and they're buying these things like we buy stuff at Costco. You know, they're doing wholesale giant purchases, $5 million into this bond, 10 million this week into that bond. And they're just riding those for maturity, unlike the average investor like you or me, Holly, where we have to cash out, reinvest, sell at the wrong time, that bond, mm -hmm. whatever. And so there's virtually no uh, exposure to risky investments that caused that meltdown in 2008. And they're really, really good, I've found, my own personal experiences, they've, they're really good at under-promising and over-delivering. And the ones that we work with, of course, have never missed a dividend in over 100 years. That's including 2008, that's including the 1920s and 30s. So, you know, I guess I just sort of say at, at, on a safety level, life insurance, you know, uh, beats banks hands down. On a convenience level, well, you know, there's no debit card on a life insurance contract, right? 
So you can't swipe it at you know the furniture store. And that's, for some people, a, a good thing and some people a d- bad thing. <laughs> How would you say that's maybe both good and bad? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, like like you said, it, it um, you know, the consumer spending saw a dramatic increase as spending became more convenient. I mean, just with the invention of the credit card alone, we actually did another episode where we shared some of those stats as to how much more people spend when they use a credit card versus paying cash. So, I mean, there's that whole psychology behind it where when it's not convenient to spend as much, you probably won't spend as much. Um, So that could be certainly be a good thing. Uh, But then also, you know, what happens when you need something really, really quickly, you know, and you can't get it from your policy in enough time. I mean, that's very inconvenient and, and maybe not a good thing. But that's where potentially your credit card can float you until your um, you know policy loan comes in. And certainly that policy loan will be there enough time to pay the credit card off before any interest accrues. Mm-hmm. So there's there's definitely work workarounds. But um, yeah, I mean, I can see pros and cons uh, definitely on both sides. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I really consider it a good thing. I don't want to turn my policy into a piggy bank uh, so I can just go nuts at the car dealer or at the furniture store. I want to consider my purchase and that cool off period of three to five days sometimes is a good thing for me to get out of the, I want it now urge. Uh, and also from an owner's perspective, since I co-own the insurance company, I don't want that insurance company passing out debit cards to all their policyholders. I don't want all that money wrapped up in short term liabilities. You know, if, if, the insurance company, I talked to uh, the CFO of a, of a major life insurance company that really supports the bank on yourself strategy. And they said that, you know, they to, to loan out money, they have to keep a lot of that money in really short term. Um, you know, when they loan out money, they have to have another dollar ready to go in case there's a death benefit, right? Mm-hmm. So they can't put that dollar that's loaned out into like a 50 year bond or something. Uh, they have to keep it in short term liabilities, which lowers my dividend. Heck, that's my dividend over there. Mm-hmm. So I don't want it to be so convenient that I'm getting less dividends because they're loaning out 80% of their portfolio. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I guess I feel like, you know, the insurance company knows what they're doing. They mm-hmm. kind of know the right uh, blend between convenience and earnings and safety. And that's, mm-hmm. for me, enough. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is the closer and closer your life insurance policy starts to look like a savings account, you know, maybe with some of that, you know, coveted flexibility and, you know, coveted convenience, the more you're going to start seeing savings account like returns, you know, because like you said, that means that the insurance company is having to take it out of these long, long, long term investments, they can make earning higher returns and put it into short term that they can't earn as much on to, to be able to make sure that they can give you that money on a whim in any given moment. Mm -hmm. And so, sure, you know, fine, you want to, you know, you want that convenience, but then you better be ready for that, you know, 0.00001% return on your money, if that's the case. So to me, that trade-off is certainly not worth it. I'll take my, you know, higher dividend to have to wait a couple extra days to get my money and, and that sort of thing. So, we hope that this episode was helpful, kind of gave you guys some food for thought um, just in the dynamic in the world of you know banks versus mutually owned life insurance companies and, and how they work, how they're different, their structures are different, the way they run their businesses are different. And so as a result of that, you know they're never going to be able to be the exact same and your life insurance policy can never quite be a savings account. Um, of course, we want it to be maybe mirror it as closely as it can while still remaining true to the integrity 
of a life insurance policy. So hope that was helpful. Hope you guys kind of understood that. And of course, if they had any follow-up questions or wanted to dive into this a little bit deeper with us, feel free to give us a call. Um, So just want to say thank you again for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.